And I wish I could just skip being the Holy Redeemer and the Heavenly Savior. All right, now you're just talking crazy. Nah, man, I'm telling the truth, man. Sometimes I don't even want to be Jesus no more. Here I am spreading the goodness in the light, you feel me? That's all I know. But all they know is this Santa Claus bullshit. It's my birthday. My birthday. All this hyper-consumerism bullshit. This ain't what Christmas is about. It's about getting your boy what he want. And what I want is peace on earth. Garrett McQueen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast, the music podcast that in 2020 peaked at 150 on Spotify. <laughs> That's right. In the yeah. whole wide world of podcasts, there's a, you know, they say something like a thousand podcasts come out a day, start a day, in the whole wide world of them. 150, I'm not mad. And this is Opus 78. So it, 78 okay. weeks of original content every week. And seven plus eight equals 15, 150. We're serendipitous there, mm. you know, top 151, not 151. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> I wonder who was 151. <laughs> right. Oh, I need to look that up and shout them out. So anyway, you know, huge thanks to the people. You know, that's, that's the first thing I want to say for this opus. Huge thanks to the people for listening and getting us there to 150. Yeah. You know, more than I care about triloquy as a podcast you know the the big general uh, initiative uh, is one thing but the podcast triloquy more than i'm looking to be the big and bad and famous exclusive podcast that does this that and whatever you know i'm really interested in the impact and the conversations that inspire thought and question and change and i really feel like we're doing that and you know so once again really appreciate the people um tuning in and and helping us explore some conversations at some really interesting intersections you know all when when you get all of the numbers you know in, in my podcaster account for all this all this stuff um there's a lot of data you get and one of the pieces of data they take all of your listeners, at least on that platform, and see what artists that they all have in common and rank them based on, you know, how often they're listened to. Oh, Beyonce I hear this. was number two. What? And so That's I'm not impossible. upset at anyone. I'm not upset at, at anyone listening, but <laughs> number one was Ariana Grande. I don't know who's listening to Ariana Grande. I mean, that's cool. So I'm so there's an Ariana Grande track I'm going to talk about in the second movement in honor of that that interesting bit of data. No, well, that's not what I would have expected. <laughs> I don't have an Ariana Grande song in for the second movement. Um, actually, I want to talk about Michael Abels and some of his music that is not for film mm-hmm. that was moving me here the last couple of days called Global Warming. Yeah, yeah. Um, my uh, some of my official uh, announcements here before we get into the first movement of uh, this opus of Triloquy uh, made possible in part by New Music Gathering co-presenting uh, uh, with American Composers Forum and New Music USA in Minneapolis in August. Uh, it'll be here before you know it. You know, it sounds like a long way away, but in August um, 
a um, a, a a panel, a, a conference, um, and a convening with the subject of money. So as artists, you know, we don't talk about money all that often, you know, and and what are the implications of uh, pricing yourself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, knowing your worth, all of those things. So right now, New Music Gathering is looking for uh, submissions, proposals for this conference. It can be performances, it can be panel ideas, um, and I'm on the panel to um, help select cool. what's going in uh, to this uh, convening. So um, you can get all the information on that at newmusicgathering.com slash proposals. You know, many of us still, if we're being you know, responsible are sitting at home and being creative with what we got and what we can do. So, Hey, maybe get in front of your laptop and think of a, a cool way to fill up an hour of time at a convening, you know, at the intersection of uh, new music and the conversation of money. So again, more information on that at newmusicgathering.com slash proposals. Speaking of money, have you heard of the Emerging Black Composers Project? No. Tell me more about that. This is put together through uh, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and San Francisco Symphony. They got a grant of $250,000 and they're breaking it up to commission new works by black black composers uh $15,000 per winner mm. so you have until December 31st to get involved in this not only do you get the money uh you also get uh you know you were talking about um some of the um things in this program uh to help you get going there's mentorship involved in this as well mm. so you get to meet with some conductors uh, and I imagine some uh, networking and fifteen thousand dollars. Why don't you? Why don't you uh, put something together and submit? Because I'm you not could, black. You, you could you. <laughs> very good, very good. <laughs> you know who else was uh, not black, according to the uh, uh, to the folklore? Um, their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But, <laughs> but. Our guest today, he returns, Adrian Dunn, uh, has a new composition called Black Messiah. So um, in our conversation today, we talk a bit about that uh, uh, piece of music, um, his streaming service, Black Music Experience, how's that going? Uh, and also a little bit just about the implications of Black Jesus. And again, not a Black version of this um, in the manger with hay and, you know, that we know, but a Jesus who's experiences were black, you know, mm. you know, and, and not to, you know, get too far off just right here in the announcements. But listen, <laughs> remember what we were talking about with so-called Thanksgiving, how what they taught us was so far from the truth, you mm-hmm. know, um, same with, you know, this story. White Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyes. If that is as far from what, you know, could have actually happened in the Middle East 2000 years ago and it's accepted across the board, why not think about a black Jesus with that black experience? You know, so anyway, mm. we get into it. I, I get excited about that topic because I think it's it's really interesting. We watch a little bit of the show Black Jesus mm-hmm. Um a first for me. Yeah. <laughs> so shout out to the show Black uh, Jesus for uh, the downbeat today. Look, uh, a lot of uh, we, we have some more stuff, but I think we should go ahead and just jump into the first movement. Let's go. Garrett, you said that like a week ago, you finally cleared your calendar so you could have one day to do you. Yeah. To do whatever you wanted to do. What yeah. was that like? 
man, the main thing um, was getting back into video games. I've been playing Division Two. That's what that was my question. You said you got back on to a video game. I'm thinking about getting a system for the winter. You're gonna go fight uh, fight all the other twenty uh, somethings for the PS5. No, I I want to go and find an original PlayStation so I can play you know games like Medieval. You know, I like the old school stuff. I wouldn't know what the hell to do with the controllers that you guys got today. Well, for PlayStation, it's the same. It is the magical thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, see, I wouldn't know. But for those of you who like classical music and video games, there is a new... Now, I almost got this mixed up, mixed, mixed up. Switch and Twitch. Yeah, there are two different <laughs> yeah, video games. Okay. Yeah. So you said, when I, when I first showed you this video game, Mozart... Requiem. You said that's on Switch, right? Nintendo Switch? Yeah, that is a, the Switch is a console. All right. All right, I just wanted to make sure I was talking. So it's on Nintendo Switch, and you get to be Mozart. <laughs> if you've ever wondered what it was like to... Now, now, now it's not, it's not music-centered, though. You know, you're not going to like follow along on the keyboard and learn anything like that. No, you have to go and navigate Vienna. It's and a Mozart solve, RPG. And you have to solve a mystery about uh, something having to do with one of your benefactors, Joseph II, right? So, and it all comes down to Wolfgang, and he's got one day. This is my problem. <laughs> the intersection of so-called classical music and video games is already rich. There are people out there that will sit, that will, and you can speak to this uh, on the radio, that will send you an email every time you play music from uh, Final Fantasy or something else by Halo. Uh, you know, Halo, you know, any of that, you know, uh, Zelda, you know, th- yeah. you know th- those people are there. So why are we going to dumb it down to something about Mozart and your turn? And, and we, uh, you can look at some gameplay on the internet. I'll, I'll link it in the description. It's so dry. It's so, <laughs> I'm sure it's somebody no. that is just living life with it though. So let me not hate. But. Maybe, but isn't it sort of a metaphor as to where we're at now? They're, so they're trying, that, that's like the fellow fellow kids idea. Look kids, you can uh, learn you can, and play a video game. And be, you can be Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I I'm not a video gamer. That would not be one that I would gravitate to. Well, if you have a, uh, so if you're listening and you have a nephew that loves playing video games, but you want them to learn about classical music, maybe look, the, it's called Mozart Requiem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe. And, and it's, and we're not just joking. It's a real thing. It's right? a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how it's got a one star review so far. What system? So. Maybe I'll, uh, I think uh, Switch. Yeah. Right. Nintendo Switch. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go home and buy it and, um, I'll come back with a review. I hope I remember. I hope I remember. But right now I'm going to say that. So, but, but of course, Mozart's Requiem is a, you know, a beautiful piece of music. Oh, and it's in dozens of video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole big piece. Uh, I'll, I hope I'm thinking about the right thing. Requiem in D minor, right? It's been a long day. I'm already tired. It, it's, it starts with this beautiful um, bassoon solo and then it, it goes off into the huge thing it is. Yeah. Here's a little bit of that. So of course Mozart wrote that requiem was uh, working on the on the end of it toward the end of his life and 
you know, that's not the only thing dead. We we already have established that streets is done in New York, right? Okay, <laughs> and in so, Vienna. So we have to go back to that. So um, there are there were a pair of uh, New York Times articles that I saw today. Uh, they came through my Twitter, and I decided to click and read and bring them in today. Um, the first one, the uh, headline is Metropolitan Opera to Lock Out Stagehands as Contract Talks Stall. So, And you saw this one, I'm sure. So basically what I pulled from it was the organization, the Met, told the uh, union people for the stagehands, look, we can give y'all money, we can pay y'all, but you have to take a considerable cut, and, and this is what it's going to be. And the union people said, no, that's unacceptable. So the Met said, fine, you're locked out. So now the Met does not have those stagehands to prepare for what they were planning on, um, I believe, for the fall of 2021, you know, uh, beginning um, with uh, the Terrence Blanchard opera, you know, the, oh, the first yeah. one by a black uh, composer. So um, I thought that was really interesting Next to what I also saw today, and and both of these articles are are uh, are dated for December seventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Monday. Uh, the the other one says New York Philharmonic musicians agree to years of pandemic pay cuts. So this one, you know, contrary to the stagehands, and this is a different organization to be right. clear, the Met right. versus the New York Phil, but they're right there. You know, they're neighbors. But anyway, so you have the uh, New York Phil musicians saying, look. I'd rather take the cut, pay us whatever, and we can figure it out from there. I think these are really uh, real, and and correct me if you know if if I'm misunderstanding something. But for these two articles, you know, to come out um, on the same day, dated the same day anyway, with uh, considering how close the two organizations are uh, culturally, but also physically, you know, in in Lincoln Center, Mm -hmm. you know, one group. Um, having stagehands who are locked out because you aren't going to work with us as far as pay cuts. And then on the other side, you know, the musicians, the musicians saying, themselves. Look, was it a reaction to one? Did the musician see well, uh, what was happening with the stagehands at the Met and, and say, wait, we that don't want to be locked out? You know, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Well, you said that both of these were dated today, right? Yeah. Okay. But I had heard about the Met lockout a few days ago for some reason. Okay. Or, or at least yesterday. And specifically so, with the stagehands. Right, with the stagehands. So I was wondering if there was some sort of uh, a communication. Like, did the the film musicians find out about the lockout and go, let's take the bite we can get? Yeah. Let, let, and, and let me throw out just a, a couple uh, little factoids from each article. So the article about the Met opera and the stagehands, this is from that. It says, the Met, which has been shut by the pandemic since March, says that it needs to cut labor costs significantly if it is to survive until and after it reopens. So the company, which has furloughed most of its workforce without pay since April, has offered to begin paying many employees up to $1,500 a week if their unions agree to long-term contracts that include a 30% cut in pay. Half of those cuts would be restored once the Mets box office returns to pre-pandemic levels. So mm. what, what? So just in reading that, you know, my feeling is if I'm really breaking it apart and thinking about all options and, and collective bargaining, it seems like the loophole is we're going to pay y'all this money despite the money we are going to be getting for this, you know, big return. The, the, the work you do, you know, is going to, from their perspective, I would imagine the work that they do is going to result in all of this money, you know, all of this support. 
um, that might even match what was happening before, but you're paying a significantly less, you know, for it to be cut and dry like that is a little dangerous. So I definitely get it. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that because I think like a lot of people, the minute you're faced with losing your income, your willingness to negotiate goes up pretty quickly, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And without thinking it through, I think that I probably would have, my knee-jerk reaction would have been take what you can get. Now let's go over across the um, boardwalk. I'm sure the New Yorkers call it something, but across the little middle area (laughs) to the uh, New York Philharmonic, um, I'll I'll read from that uh, article. Um, It says here, the New York Philharmonic battered by a pandemic that will keep its concert hall dark for at least 15 months announced on Monday. That's today that its musicians had agreed to a four year contract that includes substantial salary cuts under the new contract. The musicians will see 25 percent cuts to their base pay through August 2023. Pay will then gradually increase until the contract ends in September 2024, though at that point the players will still be paid less than they were before the coronavirus pandemic struck. Mm. You see, the cuts will amount to more than $20 million in musicians' wages over the course of the contract, the head of the Players Negotiating Committee said in a news release. So despite all of that, you know, the cuts and, and what's going to be happening, they took it. So I wonder what the difference is. Is it a difference in perspective, a difference in uh, uh grand how can I say like a grand purpose you know when we talk about how important unions are and mm-hmm. I, I wonder I wonder what the you know what's happening in the back rooms here boy that, I've never been involved in a union I wouldn't know the first thing mm-hmm. and didn't you say that the Met stage hands were supposed to take a 30 percent cut right right that's what the article said anyway huh I, I don't even I wouldn't even know how to respond. Well, I don't I don't know, man. I, I think it's just interesting to look at. I'll post both both of these uh, articles in the description. Again, uh, two institutions that are, you know, culturally and uh, physically related in many ways in New York City, uh, both dealing with uh, the pandemic, both dealing with negotiations and two fairly different responses. So I'll post them both there for you to um, think about and consider and. Yeah. I wonder if it's an instance of the players being comfort. You know, there has to be a pay difference between a stagehand and a musician, right? Of course. Of course. But not, so, a, but not a difference in rights and a difference. In, no, no. You know, right. And, well, and I think maybe that's a part of this. What I'm what I'm thinking, though, is wouldn't a musician be a little bit better suited financially to go through a longer contract than a stagehand would? Certainly, certainly. I mean, if, and I don't know what stagehands make, you know, for the Met, but my assumption would be for the, especially the tenured New York Philharmonic musicians, they're probably okay for a little bit. I would hope. Right. I would hope they are considering what they make. Wow. That's just a, that is such a murky quagmire. I would, thoughts and prayers to you. I don't understand how what what conversations are going on in the back room like you asked me no the same idea. the the same thoughts and prayers that the members of those institutions were you know throwing to the very diverse communities of new yorkers that they were never engaging right mm. this well, is called triloquy you can i'm trying to wake the people you, up you can in, you can interpret <laughs> you know take it how you find it you know, so i mean yeah. but it, but that is to be considered right as well that's right? what i'm saying okay. so all right all right so, yeah, <laughs> shout out to them. here's here's a performance by the new york philharmonic <laughs> Thank you.
little fancy free there. Well, my, my go-to is always West Side Story, but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think of other things for for people to have in their mental Rolodexes. So uh, New York Phil playing a little fancy free by Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, yeah about sailors on shore leave. Mm-hmm. And yeah. going in the bar and fighting over the women, but the women walk out and they still fighting. And <laughs> Classical music, telling the stories that need to be told. <laughs> Period. Nice one. <laughs> um, well, uh, speaking of stories that need to be told, I have um, one more. And look, we and we didn't put an accidental about a single thing. We'll Damn. come back. We'll come back to the accidentals next week. So, (laughs) again, shout out to y'all. Number 150. Let's shoot for 149 by by remembering to put accidentals (laughs) about things. (laughs) Um, This uh, this last article um, that I want to bring up comes from National Public Radio, NPR. It says Americans for the Arts promises more racial and cultural equity. So for people who don't know, Americans for the Arts um, is a very important arts organization. You know, for all intents and purposes, the organization is um, how the arts connects to Washington and how certain bits of legislation are uh, legislations are made that can impact arts um, organizations, uh, nonprofits, schools, mm-hmm. all of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very uh, consequential organization. Um, I'm going to just read from... Um, the uh the the article here uh the largest and most influential arts advocacy and service organization in the country has responded to sharp criticism over its lack of diversity and commitment to help arts groups lead by and for people of color americans for the arts conceded that the steps they've taken toward racial and cultural equity have not been enough now scott where does this criticism come from? You know, it comes from all corners of the uh, arts industry, you know, from performers, from folks like us doing what we're doing, um, educators and from people who have been on this show before. So when I saw this um, article and I saw Kwanis uh, Floyd's name Her in name it, attached, you know, yeah. and I was texting you about it and I'm, I'm going to read more of Kwanis's words here, but I just wanted to say, you know, um, for me, it is it just really affirms me to see um, other folks out here, you know, standing up against these large organizations that have the uh, power and the means to just brush anything to the side because you know, for certain people, it it just doesn't matter or whatever. But mm-hmm. you know, to see um, Kwan East out here, you know, stepping up and using her resources and really trying to be impactful, and you know, for her to be someone that you know uh, I've collaborated with, that we've collaborated with, and I, I'm I, I just, I'm I'm so proud of her. And I'm just so happy that folks are out here really pushing, you know. Remind me of the title of her podcast. I think it was called uh, Go. Oh, no. Her podcast is called uh, Art Accordingly. That's yeah. right. Because yeah. the thing about Kwanis is, is that you meet her in regular every day. She's friendly, fun. She was with know, us when we that. got the open face sandwiches in Detroit or whatever. And the Conies. Yeah, the, the Conies. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah that, was a great, that was a great night. And then they did a live broadcast, not uh, a live recording of their podcast in mm-hmm. front of a group Quanis goes off Quanis does not yeah. play or hold back yeah. so check out art accordingly because 
Kwanis will tell you what's up. Yeah, we we got off the track there a little bit, but I just wanted to make sure I gave my flowers to Kwanis because she's out here doing it. One of the many people. So anyway, back to this article. I'm gonna read here. Um, it says the statement signed by AFTA's, you know, um, uh, Americans for the you know the organization mm-hmm. uh, signed by AFTA's president and CEO Rob Lynch is largely a response to an editorial written by arts education advocate Kwanis Floyd and published in Hyperallergenic on November 11th. Floyd is the executive director of arts education in Maryland schools. It talks about more of what she's doing here. Um, But in the article, um, which is linked in this, which will be in the description, the title of it, The Failure of Arts Organizations to Move Toward Racial Equity. Uh, Kwanis writes, the arts field prides itself on being progressive. However, the same issues that we see playing out in in national media are the same issues we deal with in the field every single day. She singled out AFTA as one of the institutions that is, quote, hoarding power and blocking pathways for professional advancement in the field for BIPOC arts leaders. So, you know, um, and, you know, we've texted about this and she was kind of keeping me in the loop about how things were going um, the the past few months. But at the end of the day, you know, what she um, is doing is calling these organizations to task. You know, you say you want to do this percentage of this sort of work or you have plans to do this or you support this community. You know, um, the question is how? Where are the receipts? Show mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. And not even in a um, in an angry or accusatory way. You know, I remember Kwanis telling me at one of the meetings she um, went uh, to um, and asking that question, she brought the energy of, well, um, we, we really want to um, advocate for this organization and tell everyone uh, the phenomenal things you're doing. How can we get an update on on what's happening? You know, even just at asking it like that. Sure. And to that, just getting nothing after after all of this time. And I'm going to, you know, circle back around this uh, a little bit um, in the triloquy. But, you know, what I wanted to um, ask you here, Scott, was, you know, you have me, you have folks uh, out here like Kwanis that are standing up against these huge organizations in a very, very public way, um, despite what that might mean for, you know, her employment um, opportunities in the future or what connections that, you mm-hmm. know, or, or what people are assuming about her. Um, do you think um, seeing this sort of open um Sorry, sorry, y'all. When my, you call somebody when out. When you call somebody out, right. Mm-hmm. My, my, it's been a long day. Um, do, do you think the way that's happening um, and not the cancel culture way, but in this sort of editorial way, do you think that's a better way let to, me, to, to put it forward? Sure. Let me go back to my graduate school days. I want to tell you about some, uh, a th- I'm sure that there's a not very interesting name for this theory, but the way that I learned it in class is the spiral of silence, mm-hmm. which means that like, let's say you've got 10 people in a room. The dominant idea dominates the room, right? Yeah. Okay, so Kwanis might be one of those one or two people that has the courage and the platform to say some of these things. Yeah. So basically, the dominant idea tends to drown out the smaller ones, even if the smaller ideas are good ones and they need to happen. So Kwanis is one of those people that will get other people onto her side and then all of a sudden that voice that was being drowned out becomes a moderate voice or Mm -hmm. or even a dominant voice so i i think that what you're seeing is with examples like you know what you do with your work what we're doing here with the podcast what kwanis does uh hopefully we're going to see these things that we're talking about become a dominant idea yeah yeah and spiral out to to turn it around spiral out 
the things that we're, we're, we're fighting against. I think she was featured way back in Opus 18 or something. Was, I, I think yeah. 18 is yeah. it. Um, if you want to go back and listen to that, uh, sorry about the audio quality. You know, we've grown a lot. <laughs> I, I did that sitting at my kitchen table in the old apartment, you know, and it's oh, right there, by the way. Anyway, but uh, the example that I uh, just wanted to briefly, briefly, you know, uh, it, rounding out the first movement here, briefly bring up, you know, uh, Quanice, you know, uh, beginning her career as a music educator uh, in Washington, D.C., was really trying to be equitable and and, uh, demonstrate some cultural competency Mm -hmm. and brought in the tradition of go-go into the classroom. And anyone, you know, from D.C. um, knows how, you know, that style of hip hop, you know, rooted back from the funk and mixing it all together. is just an integral part of Washington, D.C. So she was teaching that in her music classroom. You know, you're you're in you're at school. You're learning about music. Why not learn about your local music? music you know that just made sense to Kwanese. she talked about uh, in the episode of the podcast you know mm-hmm. um that, that 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 we did way back when uh, how the uh principal or other administrators came in saying that's inappropriate cut it off x y and z so you know that's just one example i think of what uh, Kwanese is trying to do if you want to step back from the picture and look at the 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 broader sort of perspective the idea that in classrooms Black kids are not being allowed to learn about their own music. It's just not being allowed. So if big organizations like AFTA are alleging to want to do what they can to influence what's going to impact all of those little classrooms and everything in between, we we need to see something. And it's mm-hmm. and it's only fair for there to be a little bit of accountability. You know, it's not pointing our fingers saying you need to help us you're saying you want to help us actually do it do you think that organizations like after are used to being challenged in this way No, absolutely not okay absolutely not so that is probably why when people just bring it up even in a hey have you noticed that you haven't been focusing in this area or anything like that uh the first time you get some sort of reaction like that you'll interpret it as backlash don't mm-hmm. you think yep. especially if it's fragile mm-hmm. well, well we talk we've talked about white fragility before so well i'm <laughs> looping back around yeah. in a very big loop evidently so here's a little bit so shout out to Kwanis. Mm. you know again uh, all of this material um will be in the description of this opus the the two new york uh, uh, articles, this NPR article with a, a Kwani shout out, as well as the Mozart game. <laughs> I, I, for real, I'm going to try to remember to play that game and come back here with a review, but we'll we'll see. You know, I'm busy. I'm very busy. So. I know you are. Well, so we'll see. Anyway, as we uh, move on to the second movement here, here's a little bit of that go-go. If you go on the internet and search most popular or most famous go-go tune, it's going to be this one called Debut. Here's a little bit of it. I used to play to butt at wedding receptions and high school parties and stuff like that when I was a mobile DJ. And it, it would be lit. Oh, it would go off. But there was not. A, there were very few butts actually in there, in the rooms <laughs> that I was in. A lot of long, flat buttocks okay, moving around. Okay, see. 
<laughs> but we do what we, we do what we could. We did what we could with what wow. we had. Wow. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, we tried. Speaking of long backs or whatever you know, long, let me, long let me not be buttocks. let me not be shady. Ariana Grande. Like so. <laughs> so as I said in the announcements, the artist who Triloquy listeners listen to most, at least on Spotify. Again, this is exclusive to that. We're on all sorts of, you know, Apple podcasts or whatever, but Spotify gives their data in a different way. So anyway, um, the artist that most of y'all are listening to is Ariana Grande. So <laughs> my first reaction was, what have I talked about Ariana Grande on the podcast? Is she even on the bingo card? Yeah, <laughs> not at all. No, I don't think so at all. Maybe she's in there somewhere. But anyway, that inspired me to go back um, into the songs by Ariana Grande that I really appreciated. I'm just going to quickly bring up two um, from two different sort of styles and aesthetics. The first one um, is a tune that actually features Macy Gray. It's called Leave Me Lonely. Mm. And I think uh, it's a really great example of Ariana Grande, you know, showing folks that she has some sort of acrobatics vocally. You know, she mm. can really dig into that bluesy, more soulful aesthetic, even though she's cute little, cute little Ariana. And then the other one that um, I'll, I'll invite folks to go look out. So one of her uh, other big tunes, Scott, was one called Side to Side. It featured Nicki Minaj. It has that sort of Jamaican bubble to it. Mm. Um, but looking for Ariana Grande stuff years ago, you know, again, this is not new music, but years ago on YouTube, I found a channel that broke down many of her tracks in a more acoustic sort of aesthetic, a lot of Ariana Grande's solo voice master with piano um, for the arrangement of Side to Side. They use solo guitar and sort of achieve that Jamaican reggae style bubble in a in a cool way. So um, I'll, I'll link that in the uh, description to this. But uh, since y'all love Ariana Grande, you know, here's a, here's a little bit of that as well, if you don't know it. Didn't you like to use an acoustic Ariana Grande song to set the mood whenever a gentleman would see you home from the bar? <laughs> did, did we talk about that on the podcast? Just, yeah, Are you putting a, my business out there? No, you put your business out there. <laughs> oh, maybe. I'm looping back around to it. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I talked about this. If so, if that was a repeat... Uh, cool, but anyway, so I just wanted to shout out and offer some Ariana Grande because, again, according to the data, that's who y'all love. So there was Opus sixty nine <laughs> that we talked about it. Remember the oh, six oh, podcast? Oh, see, not all that long ago. Look at look at your uh, look at your memory. I'm 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 putting this thing together. I remember <laughs> stuff. I remember stuff. Okay, what what sort of uh, what sort of music you got for us this week? Well, you a number of months ago put me onto Michael Abel's because of his film work. So mm -hmm. and what, he spoke at Sphinx where we were. Right, yeah. right. So. Um, us isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Was the was yep. the big one that he did? 
Um, I actually found one of his compositions from 1991 that not only did I really enjoy the the listening experience, mm-hmm. I think that the issues that it was speaking to in 1991 are right here in front of us again. Okay. So it's sort of universal. We're looping back around yet again. This is the loop opus. Yeah. Um, so it's called Global Warming. And when someone says that to you, what is the first thing that you think of? Al Gore. <laughs> All right. But it is sort of a dated phrase now, though, right? Oh, is so, it? So we call it, we say climate change now. Oh, okay. okay it's no sure. longer global warming. And, and that's, that is a great way to piss off somebody if they want to start talking about global well, warming. it's freezing cold here. Right. Then you, you know? say, well, it's not global. It, you know, it's right. climate change sure, sure. now. So okay. if you want to be, you know, a little um, So the name of the pompous. Michael Abel's piece is Global Warming. Global Warming. Okay. And even from the title, I started to think, oh, I wonder what this will be like. Maybe this is going to be some sort of build to some cataclysmic end or something like that. Like um, um, sort of an apocalyptic piece. Yeah. But really, a lot of political and global things were going on in 1991, the end of the Cold War or the perceived end of it, or we're going to say that it was the end of it. You also had the Berlin Wall coming down, and there was this feeling of more communication and uh, a a better unity between nations. So warming in that sense that we're we're starting to get to know each other. warming. Right. But also, he wrote this as a means to sort of, sort of uh, show the thread that goes between folk traditions around the world. And it's sort of like um, w- watching art on a, on, a, on a roll go by. Yeah, like you on know? a scroll. Or, yeah, or yeah. maybe if you were in a, on an amusement park ride and you got to go through the music of several nations. So there's a part that, you know, you could hear an African influence. You told me the name of the instrument that you play with. Yeah, the, the Dell Del knows it. I so it, it's like a little piano that you play with your thumbs. Yes. Yeah. yeah, they know. Okay, so they go from that and a little bit of marimba and percussion comes in. But then I heard an Irish tint to it come in. That instrument is called an imbira or a uh, kalimba, by mm. the way. Just want to make sure I put my respect on it. So you have an, another connection to that diaspora. And uh, and then another few minutes go by, and all of a sudden I felt like I was in the middle of a desert, you know, uh, sort of in an Arabic feel to it. I really hope, uh, I'm, I'm so hopeful on a lot of things because that's all I've got mm. <laughs> is to hope on stuff. But I, I, I really hope with the coming administration, the very adult, um, thoughtful appointments that are being rolled out, I, I have to hope that we are going to see a warming 
of our reputation again around the globe. That th- th- This is my hope. So shout out to Michael Abels for Global Warming, writing a, a, a universal piece of music that's speaking to two points in time. So you know, Scott, you talk about hope. And of course, this is the season of healing and hope. Is brought, it brought to brought, brought to us straight down from heaven by the one who can give us, you know, hope like no one else can give us, you know, the one and only. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about a quick tune by Nathaniel Dett. So um, for folks who don't know, you know, this is a black uh, pianist from Canada, you know, uh, born on the Niagara, the Canada side of Niagara Falls, moved over to New York, spent time in Rochester, spent down uh, time down in Tennessee, you know, not far from Memphis. He followed um, that Underground Railroad right to the, the roadhouse. The, the other way. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, but and, and so a lot of, so if you don't know who he is, definitely go look him up. Uh, you know, a, a name that more people are beginning to know these days, Nathaniel Dett, D-E-T-T. Um, uh, folks uh, uh, play his um, uh, Magnolia Suite all the time. The in the bottoms. Well, uh, a, a suite of his that I came on um, the week be- a week before last that I wanted to bring up um, is called Eight Bible Vignettes. And uh, I'll just say as an aside, um, I put this um, as a part of my show that I'm doing with KVNO FM, mm-hmm. uh, The Sound of 13. Uh, what I was talking about in that episode, you know, this piece of music was a really great tie in. So basically um, what he did was he took um, eight um ideas from the Bible and put them to the piano. And it's, it's really um, uh, an incredible uh, look at how you can pull different colors from the piano, different moods. For example, the very first movement um, is called Father Abraham, and it definitely has that, you know, ruckus, very, how can I say, old and wise, but demanding feel to it right from the top. And then if you move on further into the piece in the fourth movement, in that fourth Bible vignette, you have a movement that's subtitled Barcarolle of Peace, a Barcarolle being a type of song, you know, in um, in Western classical music. But this is a Barcarolle of Tears. And in it, you can really just hear that sadness. Again, like I said, a different color of the piano um, that Nathaniel Dett was able to, you know, write down on on, on a piece of staff paper. So again, we're not going to, I'm not going to break down all eight of the Bible vignettes, but uh, definitely go look that up. Nathaniel Dett, eight Bible vignettes. Uh, I want to shout out a specific musician. Uh, There's, I'll I'll put uh, some commercial recordings on the Triloquy Tracks playlist, but if you go to YouTube and you look up A.L. Humans, Y-O-U-M-A-N-S, he really just pulls the spirit out of those pieces in a really beautiful way. And, And having the visual there is really phenomenal 
as well. So shout out to him and shout out to Nathaniel Depp for those eight Bible vignettes. That sounds like a new euphemism. Boy, he really pulled the spirit on that one. (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) All right, we'll see if it works. Well, um, you know, pulling the spirit. So today's guest is Adrian Dunn coming back to talk about his new composition, The Black Messiah. So Scott, as we sort of uh, touched on um, at the beginning, and we'll get back into it in the fourth movement, it's not um, about turning our white perception of the white Jesus that we have been presented black. It's about really viewing the Messiah, the idea of the Messiah, all the way down to the music as originally and culturally black. Mm. So in this Messiah, the Black Messiah by Adrian Dunn, there's hip hop, there's gospel, there's um, so-called classical, you know, um, with violins and uh, operatic singing. It all comes together in a really phenomenal way. So Adrian and I um, came together to, to talk a little bit about that, about the black music experience, the streaming network that he started, mm. and lots of other stuff so uh to uh, so to get us in uh, i only giggle uh thinking about you know my, my jesus description earlier but you know well it, it's the holiday season we're allowed to have a little bit of fun right so, <laughs> sure so here, so here is the uh an excerpt uh from the second movement of the black messiah by adrian dunn to get into my conversation with him valentine's day 1988 back of whip it was western and late he ain't bring no condom she was underwear he ain't really care took her with some force ripped her underwear homeless people watching couple ninas popping murderous conception nothing immaculate nothing spectacular no we have you know the aversion to anything that is black in substantive uh musical I feel like, you know, similarly, we talk about like black spirituality and black magic. And when we we talk about those things, Mm -hmm. uh, that black folks are spiritual folks, you know what I mean? And so I think that in and of itself scares folks. I think what a lot of uh, white folks don't realize, though, is that, you know, black folks in all our forms carry that same level of, of, of spiritual vibration, I believe. And I don't think that it is uh, this or this or, you know, because the thing that got me always growing up was like, I have to sing Gloria in Excelsis Deo over and over mm-hmm. and over. Uh, the first choral piece I ever learned was Vivaldi's Gloria, right? Gloria, Gloria, you know, whatever. I mean, in Cleveland Orchestra Youth Chorus, uh, we the first mass ever did was the Haydn Polkin mass. The first, um, I, I, I'm just saying like, it was like every single, the Beethoven choral fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, as we go through each of these pieces, we find the same language that we as black folks in this country sing every day. Right. But somehow our versions are too sanctified. They're too Christian. They're pushing religion on people. They're all of these things, but but when we went to go see Verity's Requiem or when we went to go see the Britain War Requiem, are we saying those same things? Absolutely not. So what? So let's just let's speak plainly. What what is being said when when the gospel aesthetic is is pushed to the side is too religious for those classical, those so-called classical spaces? that white is always right is what's being said right i mean it's that unequivocally you are not worthy this style this presentation is not worthy of this 
type of space. And what I have argued for years is that, you know, it was always the classical music's detriment not to embrace these things when so much of the stuff that we consider American is rooted all up in it. Right, exactly. It is it. This is knocking off this, not the other way around. Like, we are not (laughs) imitating nobody. Y'all are imitating us, Sir, Sir Aaron Copeland. Sir, Sir, Sir Samuel Barber, I, I'm just calling the thing a thing mm-hmm. that that you didn't just wake up one day and say that, you know, Samuel Barber, like your favorite singer is Lindsay Price. Just just because. Yeah, just because. <laughs> right, right. Now, it's one thing for um, I think is one thing for, you know, certain folks to affirm, you know, to even in a new way, in a contemporary way to affirm those gospel aesthetics in so-called classical music. Um, considering that they don't have some of the baggage that some of us might have. What do you have to say, you know, to the black folks, maybe even the black uh, so-called classical musicians who, you know, have avoided the the church or been pushed away from the church? You know, that, that unique intersection of black classically trained musician who is trying to affirm blackness, you know, next to the church I went to growing up said gays are going to hell, so I don't want nothing to do with it. As an example, that as an example, of course. Right. Yeah. And also as a black gay man myself, I feel like, you know, this is a complex topic, right? Mm-hmm. It's complex for a lot of different reasons, but I think my angle has always been if we survey the history of black folks from the middle passage to today, then we discover that that trauma that we discover all of that is baked in there the good and the bad and very rarely in life can you separate the good from the bad or the bad from the good and i guess where i'm going is is that i think that the thing that all of us can celebrate as um black folks is that we are all a part of this legacy this is our legacy whether or not we are people who necessarily believe or call ourselves, call ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Christian or Catholic or or Muslim or whatever we call ourselves, the essence of who we are is always there and is indeed present. And so I feel very strongly that the the best of who we are is always represented in the music that we bring forth to the world. And that is, you know, that is our life source sonically right it it is us sonically and i believe that that is something that we can all celebrate as you said earlier like i can appreciate uh eastern music i can appreciate any type of music i don't need to feel like i have to call myself uh buddhist or i have to speak mandarin or i have to you know whatever for me to to feel and kind of appreciate honor and i can even love it right Um, And I feel like so many of us love us, love our music, but have problems with the politics of certain institutions. Right, right. And that is something that is very (laughs) different. Exactly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and to, you know, underscore one of your previous points in the same way that we're taught in grade school in a Chelsea's Deo and the question of, you know, our Christianity not being brought up. I I think the same can be said about, you know, this uh, so-called gospel music. I don't even, you know, Mm -hmm. in the same way that I challenge the phrase classical music, is is there a challenge from your perspective of the word gospel? Well, I, I think that, you know, just the common 
ways that we embrace the word gospel and some people use gospel as a catch-all for anything mm-hmm. black um i think <laughs> it's kind of problematic yeah right you know right. it's like my i'm a composer and, and my group does a lot of you know complex spirituals and you know some people say you know oh it's gospel and i say that you know it's unfortunate that in our in our country that we are not learned enough to mm. understand yeah, the complexities our of our own stuff. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yep. That like, yes, uh, gospel music is complex. Yes, choral music is complex. They're all complex things. But when you are speaking from a place of ignorance, where you don't know the difference in a concert spiritual and a James Cleveland, you know, right, right. <laughs> so right. like there, there's, those are not the same, you know? And, and, and so, yeah, I, I think it speaks of a lot of, a lot of things. That way. So, so we're talking about black Messiah and, you know, when I go into my um, DSPs or whatever I use to, you know, stream this, I would love to see it under the classical category because that affirms certain conversations that I have and whatever. So, but, but for you, um, you know, if we have to compartmentalize is a uh, gospel where you want this to be is classical where this, where you want it to be. How, how do you, how do you uh, frame black Messiah when we talk about these, you know, genres and subgenres, and, you know, not only for the affirmation side of it, but also for the discovery side of it, you know, the mm. folks who live in certain camps, you know, who do you want to stumble upon black Messiah? Well, the short answer is everyone. Yeah, of course. Um, the, but... <laughs> the, 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 I, I think that I don't really operate very much in genre spaces very well. Uh, um, mm-hmm. They are challenging for me for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think for me, I don't see why um, us challenging the notion of what a, a certain art that deserves to be in one category versus another mm-hmm. uh, is really um, valuable at this point, you know, on some level. I think there should be some conversation about uh what is and why you know what i mean not just that it is but why is it you know what i mean and i feel like um so much of my music exists in the cracks so to speak um uh some people would say fusion i tend to say you know on the borders of mm-hmm. a lot of different genres but i believe that that is what the real artwork is i say to people you know, pre Philip Glass and pre a lot of, you know, um, classical composers uh, that we now know as older uh, at this point in time, at one point were not, right? And the things that those white primarily male composers did, to me, I felt like was not as amazing or (laughs) spectacular (laughs) as as folks would say and a lot of it really looked like in my opinion a lot of the things that we see in black music repetition we see a lot of there was just so much there that i felt like you know those composers get to do what they want to do yeah yeah they could come up with anything tomorrow whether it was joseph in the technicolor dream coat Uh or jesus christ superstar (laughs) or or i'm just saying i'm just calling it what it is yeah yeah or they could wake up one morning and write a porgy and bess 
Um, or I'm just saying, or, or in the case of Bernstein, not only the Bernstein masses, but, but also, um, West Side Story, right? Yeah. 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 They get to write whatever they want to, but for whatever reason, when you're black, we come to expect only certain things from you, or we have to place you here. And if you don't stay there, then we really have a problem. We don't know what to do with you. You know, that's, and, that's a phenomenal <laughs> point, you know, especially considering that black messiah, it has so much, you know, everything from a uh, classical violin, you know, shout out to, uh, to Caitlin, Caitlin Edwards, yes, you, know, yes, you have yes. the, you have the operatic singing, you have the traditional black singing, you have the rap and the his, the uh, hip hop aspects of it. So, you know, with it being so many things, you know, um, and in the conversation of affirming it as so many things, why do you think it's appropriate or do you think it's appropriate to um, consider black Messiah when an institution is thinking about doing handles Messiah once again mm. is that are, are those you know uh, traditionally you know classically spaces appropriate for something like black Messiah for, for from your perspective from my perspective all of my work I think lives inside of you know one of the aesthetics I hold true to my to, to my heart which is that the art over everything mm. And so in my thing, in my mind, it's in one of the things that's big on this album and how the Amen closes that that seven part Amen that I happen to really love a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, how it closes is that black is everything. And I love that because for me, it embodies everything about who we are. We are all of these things. You know what I mean? And and that that which we some people say was borrowed from us or I like to say was stolen from us mm. never stole our souls. It never stole the spirit that was inside of the work. And so for me, I believe that Black Messiah is no less classical, classical, right? Right, right. Um, than a, a number of pieces. Uh, I, I can I can <laughs> I can venture uh, to to think about a number of pieces that you know we still say are in the classical kind of canon or mm -hmm. canon plus, depending on who you're talking to, um, that I feel like are absolutely drawing on these very roots, these very musical roots um, in gospel. You know, mm -hmm. but we just don't call it that. We just don't say that, right? Now we can talk about Black Messiah and the Black musical aesthetics of it, but we can also talk about the idea of the Messiah being Black. I wonder if that was if that wonder if that was a part of of your coming up with this piece of music. Yes, that was the 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 biggest point. Again, I started writing this the year that Donald Trump was elected um, as as a collection called the Black Messiah, and for me, I just kind of felt like you know if we're going to have real conversations about racial equity, if we're going to have real honest conversations about how we can better serve Black folks in this country, I feel like we have to begin to have honest conversations about how we rectify the beginning of the story, which is how we see uh, Jesus the Christ mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in, 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 in this Western country we call America. Um, and our story, why is every time we talk about Jesus, Jesus is white. Why is every time we invoke the word Messiah uh, and we put the, 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 the word black in front of it, it is a problem. 
for folks when we use the word black explicitly somehow it is problematic or it challenges something deeper greater and it's more of an offense when the reality is is that the 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 black messiah i describe in this work is more like the messiah even in the kjv in the king james version mm -hmm. than <laughs> um the one that i guess y'all go to walmart and target for and, you know, Home Shopping Network or wherever, you know, the kids shop these days, um, you know, for our commercial white Jesus Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is really, we just worship in <laughs> money. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. I wonder, you know, and, and let's talk about, um, you know, the subject of the Messiah, you know, this immaculate conception and all of that. I wonder uh, what you think, um, considering the black Messiah, you know, making Jesus uh, black, what, what's the conversation around not being allowed in the end? I feel like that alone, it, it completely frames the story different. If we're talking about, you know, a black mother who is unable to, you know, get a room in this place, as opposed to, you know, how the story has been uh, traditionally depicted here in the here in the States. Yeah, I think there's, you know, always the story of the haves and the have nots, right? Mm -hmm. And this story is no different. And in our story in The Black Messiah, our Jesus is born in the back of a Jeep truck in 1988 on Valentine's Day as a product of rape. Um, it is a story that is one that we have heard before, but never, I believe, from this perspective with this amount of realism and, and truth telling. Um, as you talked about, they're not being room at the end, you know, they're in a Jeep. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The, mm -hmm. a, a commentary on uh, what we have here, I think in Chicago oftentimes, which is a, a horrible homelessness problem. I believe our our current rates are somewhere around 80,000, 80, 80, something crazy like that. I heard here recently. And I feel like so much of the story of the Christ looks like the story that so many black folks mm -hmm. in urban and rural areas who are living at or below poverty right now can recognize and say that, yes, I see that. And I felt like in order for us to talk about a black savior or Messiah um, who has to have gone through something that looks like folks' lives and, and something that means something to people right now, particularly during COVID and during a pandemic, I felt like we could no longer hear these messages um, of just this perfect, uh, you know, white power up in the sky somewhere who I think is supposed to come and save us or something. Behold thy king cometh unto I'm a nerd about the, um, you know, the nuts and bolts of the music, you yeah, know, yeah. the music theory of it all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if you could speak to the actual composition of the music, you know, beyond the themes, beyond, you know, the bigger message. How did you approach writing the, the, the black notes, the dots, you know, really digging into the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah, so I think, um, just speaking of it, I think uh, for me, I was just like, there's always, first of all, I'm a fan of E flat. 
<laughs> I, I'm just I'm such a fan of E flat. And um it's just like it feels like joy to me. For, <laughs> for me, I, I just feel like I, it's I don't like know a why, synesthetic it, sort of thing. Yeah, and, and I think also because I'm I'm a church kid, right? I feel like, you know, a lot of my favorite songs are in E flat, you know, our our famous church keys, A flat, mm -hmm. you know, uh D flat or D flat minor, right? And I think for me here, I felt like it needed to be something simple. Because for me, when I hear Handel's aria, Rejoice, I hear like I just hear all the, more and all more the and melismatic more. material for the vocabulary yes. teachers. <laughs> yeah, right. We, we hear all this melisma and I felt like that for me, that that rejoice for Black folks uh, after we hear comfort ye and every valley, after we hear those things, I felt like we needed a, a setting that felt like peace. You know, it felt like peace. It felt like a calm storm, like a mm -hmm. storm that was big and mighty and could get you to the highest heights but had the intimacy and had the softness and the depth of soul and heart and spirit to meet you right where you are at the place of your greatest need. Um, I feel like Rejoice has an intimacy to it that um, some of the other pieces don't. Um, and I think you hear this solo voice, you hear this solo violin, and you hear this relationship between the two, again, there's a call and a response, right? She sings, rejoice, the, the background sings, rejoice, re -da -da -de -da, right? We hear the themes kind of emerging. And then in the very last vamp, where those, those harmony parts come in, we hear the spacing in those chords and in inversions that, you know, we as Black folks use so much in gospel music that I love that texture, right? That texture in and of itself is like a thing. Um, and I felt like I wanted it to just feel almost like like glass, like you could just see right through it, that there was such a transparency that even the veil of the performance did not interrupt right. what was really being said or right. being sung. Right. You know, and when you describe all of that, you know, it just makes it uh, plain and clear once again that all of the ingredients, even all of the um, the Western structures of so-called mm. classical music are at play here. Plus, there's the cultural seasoning, you know, there's the modern day relevancy of it all that really mm -hmm. pushes it. Well, anyway, I'll say should push it, you know, up to the top above these, you know, hundreds year old pieces of music that, you know, don't necessarily speak to the modern day experience, you know, and with True. all of the comparisons, you know, between Black Messiah and Handel's Messiah, I wonder if you've uh, thought about or had experiences with comparisons between Black Messiah and Kanye's Jesus is King or uh, the Abyssinian Mass, you know, uh, the Abyssinian Mass is one thing, but specifically Jesus is King, you know, with Kanye also being a Chicago uh, person, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if that's a comparison that you've uh, uh, thought about at all. I haven't actually, I, I think that, you know, so much of my work I feel like exists um, in, 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 a, in a different space of, uh, I think, fusion and kind of on those borders of genre, I think we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, Damien's work in the Abyssinian Mass um, and went in Marcellus, I mean, 
is is great, but definitely speaks to a specific time and period yeah. and, you know, um, et cetera. Um, and similarly with Kanye's work, you know, love, love that piece. I feel like, you know, that idea of the cover of the sample is really what that album is, is, is that, you know, Kanye, if I, if I recall correctly, didn't write a thing on that album, mm -hmm. but these were cover songs of great gospel artists. I mean, the Clark sisters and you had Rick Robinson, who was also covered uh, on the Lamar Campbell famous song more than anything. Um, you, you had Hezekiah Walker, you know what I mean? And so I felt like it was an homage to gospel yeah. um, that was given this this fusion perspective, a millennial, you know, kick, right, or injection, if you will. And I think, you know, my work um, kind of feels like you know, that fusion from a different perspective, right? And mm -hmm. using a lot of those elements that we traditionally, I think, structurally might call classical, uh, but I think our uh, classical adopts from us. But yes. Now, Black Messiah is available, uh, at least the uh, the video, the, the visual performance is available exclusively on BME. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about how things have uh, been going since the launch. Yeah, so um, Black Music Experience is a new streaming service that I started um, a couple months ago, and um, it is kind of my baby right now. And it's a streaming platform designed to preserve the contributions of Black folks, but specifically uh, to highlight the contributions of living Black artists who need our support now. Um, and what I love about BME is uh, it not only houses um, the Black Messiah video content, uh, another great show, Justice Speaks, with Marvel Terry um, on health issues, uh, Sisters on Sacred Grounds. It also hosts um, any number of genre categories of Black music where you can find uh, living Black composers um, from Black orchestral work on down to, to gospel music. And so I'm really excited about it. Um, you can definitely check out um, the concert, The Black Messiah, uh, for $12.99. Um, at watchbme.com, uh, and that also includes a three-month subscription. Um, and if you would like to support Black Art, I encourage you to go ahead and and just do the year. It's forty nine ninety nine uh, for the whole year, where you can experience Black music three hundred and sixty five days a year. You know, last week I had the pleasure of um, featuring a woman named Donna Walker Kuhn on my show. And one of the things that she talked about was uh, inspiring in people uh, the idea of art being worth something, you know, really putting value into this art and not taking for granted that it can't always be free or can't always be given to you. I wonder if you'll speak to that a little bit. We can, it's so easy to feel uncomfortable around the conversation of money, but when it comes yeah. to um, really supporting black art and supporting black music and musicians, uh, the cost is a part of it. And it's a part of yeah. it that um, I think more and more of us are finally, you know, more comfortable in acknowledging, look, I need your help in paying for this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is no cheap endeavor to be a musician, you know, and believe me, it is no cheap endeavor to produce work at a level of quality that I think is deserving of our community, quite frankly. Um, I think sometimes we don't want to talk about supporting black business because oftentimes I don't think we actually see 
black artists, black business. Um, there's an interesting study and I'm gonna find it because uh, I, I read it in undergrad, but the, the basic argument of this study was that people don't support the arts oftentimes because they know it's real value. Mm. Um, and not because they don't know, but because I think they do know uh, that there, this, this, this author was arguing that there was some type of morality involved with paying for it. And it was an interesting th- argument. I'm not saying I completely agree, but I am saying that I think that that finance and supporting black business should be somewhere way up at the top of any conversation about equity for black folks right now. If we're gonna talk about equity and if we're gonna talk about that, we have to talk about the fact that the top 10% of classical artists or and or companies, excuse me, not artists, but companies and or organizations um, hold a very high percentage of the wealth in this industry space. And one, it's not fair. It's what we in other spaces would call a monopoly. But beyond that, I feel like it diminishes this idea that black ownership, black business is valuable in this space and that all of us, I think, um, will always have some type of tie to a larger white institution. And I just don't believe that. I I believe enough to to know that we can have those things um, for ourselves, you know, um, that are on our own terms and that speaks life on, based on what we see and how we see the world. And so that's what BME is. And, and I'm believing for big things. And, you know, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that when it comes to independent um, organizations, independent uh, startups, you know, like BME, sometimes, you know, there are are a few kinks, you know, maybe you have to refresh the website here or, you know, just double back and check for this. It seems like we will allow uh, Google to go offline or to uh, to not work or whatever, but as soon as you know one of our things isn't completely Absolutely. you know perfect, it makes folks shaky. And I don't, I just felt yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. I feel like though there are little things like that that go unspoken that need to yeah. be affirmed. You know, have have a little patience with you know yeah. things that things that are new like this. I've certainly never you know started a streaming service, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I hadn't either, but you know it's been. It, it's been a challenge, but I'm, I'm really hoping that I'm hoping that, you know, moving forward, the more people who know about it will be able to see, as you talked about earlier, that real value in who we are and particularly mm-hmm. in our music. So I know that there are a lot of people uh, who are going to check out BME, check out Black Messiah, um, but who do not have at all the background of a gospel aesthetic, a hip hop aesthetic, yeah. maybe not even a black music aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, there's a um, there's a woman who listens. Uh, she wrote me um, and said that you know this show was the first time she heard two black people in conversation together. You know, so it, wow. it's it's really all across the gamut. So for folks yeah. who have never experienced. Um, the aesthetic of what the Black Messiah is, you know, not only orally, but visually, you know, the energy and the and the emotion that's in it. What what are your words to prepare them? You know, how, how can they <laughs> how, how can they best be suited to really take in what this is? Well, you know, one of the things I talk about often is how to enter everything and particularly things or experiences that feel different with an open heart and an open mind. Uh, because I think so often in America, 
we have been conditioned, all of us, black, white, every group, um, to see things from a, a white-centered perspective, right? And I think that when we are able to see the work for what it is, right, I think that that is when the work has the most power, is when we're able to kind of take ourselves out of it and and enjoy, right, um, the contributions of, of artists like myself, you know, um, and fully to, to recognize that the message of joy and the season of hope and all of these things does not belong to a series of composers that we normally do uh, during uh, from Thanksgiving to, to Christmas Day, uh, but that many different cultures celebrate this story in many different ways in this particular Christmas, this particular holiday on the backdrop of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, on the backdrop of Elijah McClain, on the backdrop of what is hopes to close a Trump presidency um, in the next couple of weeks, we hope. Um, I feel like we have to ask ourselves these really important questions do we want to do this type of music? Do we want to be people who who does menstrual songs at Christmas? Do we want to be an industry of folks who says that where the song came from wasn't important and we don't care what the, the song was birthed in and what the song really means and what those expressions from Jingo Bells to all of these other songs, including, you know, in, in the in the in the Christian hymn category as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of things need to be uh, re-examined and taken out um, because they are offensive. This is a time where I feel like we needed a Christmas album for Black people at this time. The Black Messiah, the whole message of it is, is that I am the Black Messiah, you are the Black Messiah. And if we embrace those ideas of Black liberation, those things live inside of us no matter what color we are on the outside to preserve and to honor and to respect black lives and not just respect black life, but to be pro-black at a time right now where blackness is literally under attack is the thing that I say to many white allies as they embrace anything black, which is always to approach it with a level of appreciation, respect and honor, right? Um, so we can, I think, truly begin to actually have real movement on this conversation we, as I said earlier in the conversation, we've got to rectify the beginning of the story and the beginning of the story some 2000 and 20 years ago, as the church folk would say, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we have to start there at the Genesis to get us to where it is that we say we want to be in the conversation on equity as it relates to black music and black musicians and artists. What's coming up after the holiday season? Once we, well, after, I'll say after Kwanzaa on January 2nd, is there anything yes. uh, on your, on your calendar, anything coming up for 2021? So 2021, we are getting ready for the black music experience awards. Um, we'll be doing an award show on the last day of February. Um, and, and tr because I have, and you know what? You know how we can get as artists so in our heads about things needing to be perfect? I think COVID has taught me that you don't have time. You know, we don't have time to honor these people who, number one, should be being honored all the time, mm. but two, that we as Black people honoring our own 
uh, is really special. And so uh, the last day of the month, we're going to be working on um, the Black uh, the Black Music Experience Awards. Um, we also have a virtual choir contest in the month of February, programming-wise. It's a big deal for us. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then also we have the, the second round of EP of the re-release of Redemption um, that comes out again in February with some additional material interviews, things like that um, for that piece. And so um, February and January is going to be a busy time for us. But, you know, just as long as you're subscribed to BME, you'll be able to see all of it right there on the platform. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to a great 2021. Absolutely. I really appreciate your sitting down with me. I'm going to let the folks hear a little bit of the amen as we transition out of our uh, conversation here. What are your um, what are your pre amen words for the folks? <laughs> uh, I mean, you, because a... you do a, such a great job of, you know, fr at the beginning of the album, you know, framing what we're about to hear and speaking things. So, you know, a little a little bit about amen. Yeah, so the intro was to hear from the voice of the Black Messiah. Again, it's me, but that 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 the Black Messiah loves all of us and will fight for us and will ride for us and loves us. And I feel like the odd man for me is like the seal to all of it. It's like the it is the the big grand coda at the end. And so it's the seven part uh piece. Uh it starts in six and it then goes to seven, eight. Um, and that whole all man, as I say, that black art aesthetic that every round goes higher and higher. You hear each each part get get layered on top of layer on top of layer until we come back down in that seven time all the way back to that single unison all man. And at the very end, it just says black is genius. It is everything. Amen. And so, yeah, uh, that is what it is. Black is everything. Amen. Amen. Because it's finished. Thank you very much and amen to Adrian Dunn for joining me, for writing The Black Messiah, and for really showing us something that can inspire a really interesting conversation especially around, you know, one of those grand old holiday traditions, you know, mm. Handel's Messiah. Well, what if we took a different spin and uh, took what's classic to America? You know, we talk about classic form of music uh, to a culture and to an experience and use that to to update it a little bit. Um, the video, uh, you can get it on your streaming uh, platforms, Apple Music, uh, Spotify, uh, but the visual, the, the actual concert, which I highly recommend everyone check out, out is available exclusively on the black music experience uh you can uh, check that out at watchbme.com i'll have a link in the description that's so awesome that it's going well for him because that is no small feat starting a streaming service from, from scratch like that especially imagine. especially with this content yeah yeah right it's and it's not just any old content if you if you log on to the site you know and pay your ticket just like you pay tickets for everything else you mm -hmm. know um you see that the quality of the video is phenomenal the quality of the sound you know and look as a content creator <laughs> i am just getting into the video world because i'm having 
having to a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my hat goes off to, you know, something that looks as stunning as it does because, you know, it it costs a lot. A lot goes into that. So, again, shout out to Adrian Dunn. Um, Go join the Black Music Experience. Go check out Black Messiah and uh, hang on here for our triloquy. So, Scott, I have to be honest with you. My plan for Triloquy in December was to not acknowledge Christmas at all. You know, there, there will be the opus maybe next week or the week after next where we kind of touch on Kwanzaa a bit, of course. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't trying to have Christmas to be a part of it. But it's, it's interesting that it's come into the conversation in this way. And I appreciate it um, because... It's helped me, you know, continue to contextualize what we're doing here for the sake of this conversation. You know, we are going to say that someone, uh, a woman named Mary, gave birth to a little baby named Jesus once upon a time. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that story, as it has been documented, you know, in the middle in the Middle East, in the in the town of Bethlehem. Okay. As different as that reality is from what we just see in in uh, movies, in in literature, in contemporary literature, in everybody's lawn, you know, this picture of this white blonde baby, you know, and these white parents, they'll have they'll have the black king, they'll have the black magi there sometimes, you know. But as oh, you mean the three wise guys, right? Yeah, <laughs> as different as you know that white family is from what the reality had to have been, you know. Let's not even talk about reimagining this for um to be black like I was talking about with Adrian let's just take what is being alleged this happened in Bethlehem in the Middle East if if we are purposefully and intentionally you know getting and we can talk about the history of you know uh, art in the Renaissance and in Western Europe and you know how our depictions of Jesus came from from there and X Y and Z you know so if the intentionality of keeping Jesus and on a bigger scope you know keeping Christianity white you know how is it hard to see that in so-called classical music? I feel like that is just another example of that Eurocentricity defining what is not that at all. You know, Eurocentricity in the story of Jesus, Eurocentricity in the way we think about and define classical music. Mm. Have you seen... um online those models of what famous people throughout history might actually look like yeah yeah you know like caesar and nefertiti and Mm -hmm. things like that well if you look at the one that they put together for jesus he looked like he might have been from lebanon or iran or something like that olive skin tone he had curly hair Mm -hmm. even you know um, brown eyes a wider nose and that is what a person from that region would have looked like at that time. Some of these depictions of Jesus having him looking all right. <laughs> why? I I don't know why I wasn't expecting you to go there, but... Just my point is, you know, 
that is another example. Okay. Jesus has been made white. The story has been made white. That is another example of how that happens across different fields. And that's what we're talking about here in classical music. It has been made white. It's not that it's always been more than that. And you can, and, 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 and I hope folks can understand and sort of draw the connection about how the nativity and all of that is yet another example, because obviously a blonde baby was not born over in Bethlehem 2000 years ago. Correct. But um, one of the things that I have seen people talking about, and it it fits in the things that we talk about on Triloquy, especially representation, Mm -hmm. is that it is easier to follow if the person looks like you. So how does that play into it, right? So that if we want people to follow these teachings of the church— then the person that we're worshiping should look like us, no? I mean, obviously that's the case. You know. these, are, these are some of the conversations that I've found. And, and as I was talking about with Adrian again, what would be the implications of this story, like the story of the, uh, of the Immaculate Conception, if we understood them to be what they really were um, uh, uh, culturally? You know, mm-hmm. even vi- visually, vis- visibly, that that would that would change it. You know, I'll I'll, I'll quickly say, you know, one of the last I think I talked about this on Trilogy before. One of the last things I did in Knoxville before I moved here to Minnesota, I played a gig um, in the new cathedral. You know, it was so new that there were special rules for the musicians. You know, there was uh, butcher paper all over the floors of where course. we were sitting. You know, they just wanted to act like it because it was brand new. They had been working on it for several years. You, you go buy a new couch and you get a plastic cover right. for it, of course. In any way, walking around and seeing this cathedral built in the 21st century, you know, this would have been the years, I don't know, 2016, 2017, and all of the white iconography as far as the apostles and Jesus and mm-hmm. who these Middle Easterns would have been, again, according to the, uh, to, to the literature that they read, it just it feels violent. To me, it feels violent to me. And I think it's important for us to think about, I think, again, you know, the story of Jesus, baby Jesus is another example of how we can really see the truth of that intentional conditioning and uh, how we can, you know, begin to have the conversations of what we need to do about it. So with all that said, Triloquy number two, second and final Triloquy. (laughs) Shout out once more, one more time to Quanise Floyd, you know, talking about accountability and all of these statements and all of these allegations from arts organizations to put more uh, intentionality uh, behind uh, racial equity and the way they uh, work and move. Um, I'm seeing a lot more of these so-called woke statements, as one of my uh, uh, good former colleagues used to say. Shout out to her. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the the Im- the uh, the changes in images are changing. You know the the Reddit app on your phone around George Floyd. You know uh, around all of the energy around that. They changed it to black. You know now it's back to their traditional orange. Um, there is a local radio station who unpinned their Black Lives Matter tweet. You know. Um, it's it's beginning to fade away as people talked about months ago. You know this was a part of the conversation, was it not? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 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 sorry to see it. I hate to see it, but what 
I can appreciate out of this moment is that we're really seeing the truth. And as time goes on, the the conversations are not going anywhere. Folks like Kwanis, you know, folks like me, whoever, prod, uh, you know, shout out to Katie and Delaney uh, uh, launching the International Society for Black Musicians. You know, there's a lot happening right now and none of it is going away. So if that's not going away um, and the organizations aren't going to budge, I don't know. I, I guess we'll have to see how, how how that ends. You know, it's it's more acceptable to teach a white Jesus, a white Santa Claus and all of that as violent as that is, as you look back historically. But just naming things and asking for accountability is just too far outside of the box. It really tells you a lot. You know, the Bible says Jesus wept and so do I. <laughs> see you next week.